Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Hannah's going to come and now read the passage, which is from Revelation chapter 1, 9 through 20. Revelation 1, 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Hannah. Please be seated. I encourage you to um, grab the Blue Pew Bible if you did not bring one. Um, because we're going to go to another place here in a little bit in the Old Testament. Um, Friday, I was uh, spending time. I had four different meetings. Each of them were a one-on-one meeting with uh, a member or friend of our church. And that's such a privilege to be able to spend time with people just hearing about their own walk with the Lord. Every day, I try to end the day by asking the Holy Spirit to help me audit my conversations. What did I say that brought him glory? Is there anything I shouldn't have said? Um, What was the nature of the conversation? Was it flavored with grace? Was it centered on Christ? I encourage you to do the same thing. And I I confessed to the Lord Friday night that in response to a question that my lunch appointment asked the gentleman, Will Stockdale. Will was on staff here as a youth intern. I gave a response that I think is truthful, but then my narrative was the opposite of what I said. He said to me, after we talked a little bit about just the condition of the world, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about essentially the church? And I said, well, if what we know to be true about Christ and what's revealed in his word, then how can I say anything but I'm optimistic? And I am. But later that evening in auditing that conversation with the Holy Spirit's guidance, I realized after saying that the majority of my language was very pessimistic. I repented of that. In a world that 
is so dark and so full of decay, so full of chaos and conflict, even within the church, so much self-righteousness, so much flesh. There is a place where it seems so easy to be very dark and pessimistic. You might say, well, we're just being real. I want you to be real. I want you to be very real. And it is dark and it is pessimistic or can be pessimistic. But what I want you to be real about is where is the focus of your eyes? In the midst of the tribulations that we are in and the trials we're in, if you were to audit your conversations, whether they're verbal or nonverbal, do you hear yourself as a believer living in the power of what we have been given in Christ? Or do you find the majority of your time making commentary on the darkness of the world we live in? It's not wrong to understand the world. It's not wrong to try and discern what's going on. But what is wrong for believers is to be so overwhelmed by those tribulations and trials that we are losing the power and the joy and the confidence and the courage of who we are in Christ. That's what I loved about the choirs in Troy today. It was like a resurrection Sunday. And by the way, every Sunday is resurrection Sunday for us. We are gaining ground. You may not feel like that. You may not feel like it personally. You may not feel like it corporately. You may not feel like the light of Christ is shining that bright. But because he's the author and the perfecter of our faith, because he is going to finish what he started, we are gaining ground. That's his, his promise. Revelation is an amazing book. We're told in verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. If we hear it and obey it and believe it, we'll be blessed. But it's interesting, the prevailing command in the book of Revelation is not listen, but look. And we are entering into the first vision that John's going to receive. Where is he? He's on an island, we're told. Patmos, it's not very big. It's off the coast of Turkey, 30, 35 miles from Ephesus. And it's an island where prisoners go. And what he says in verse 9, the first verse we looked at today, he says, I, John, your brother. And that's pretty remarkable. An apostle of Christ Jesus, one of the 12, our brother. And then he says, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. What an amazing statement. John is experiencing the consequence of proclaiming Christ when he was told not to. He is in prison and experiencing tribulation. He's part of God's kingdom. And he speaks that he's there on this island on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It means two things. He's there on account of preaching the word of God, but he's also there because the word of God himself said, you will experience tribulation. So through that tribulation, John is there on this island. He's worshiping the Lord when he suddenly hears that voice. What I wanna do this morning is simply answer three questions. First question, 
What did John see? Secondly, what was John's response to what he saw? And lastly, what was Jesus's response to John's response? So let's begin. Go to verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Now, that's an interesting phrase. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. One of the things that you're going to notice if you're paying attention is that Revelation is not just a book about the future. That's what we tend to think. It's apocalyptic in nature, but it's also prophetic, and it's a pastoral book. It's an epistle. So as John is writing this vision, what he's receiving from the Lord, there are a total of 404 verses. Of the 404 verses, 285 of them have Old Testament citations. Think about that. And there's over 550 allusions to the Old Testament. Why does that matter? Because it's not a book just about the end times. It is a book that is the final book of the canon of Scripture, where from the beginning of Genesis to Revelation, it's one story of redemption, all pointing to Christ. And what you'll see as you read this book, and I encourage you to, and you see the footnotes, go and read where those passages come from, because they inform what we need to know. In a minute, we'll see this from the book of Daniel. So what did John see? He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, sometimes Revelation is going to explain what those images mean. For example, in this case, we are told what is meant by the seven golden lampstands in verse 12. Look with me at the final verse, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the first thing that John reveals to us is that he sees these seven golden lampstands. They represent the seven churches that we will begin reading their letters next week as Paul Goebel preaches on the very first letter in Revelation chapter 2. And then he says, in the midst of the lampstands, which represent the churches, I saw one like a son of man. That phrase, like a son of man, is important because the phrase son of man is the phrase that Christ used most often of himself. It's also the one that's used in the book of Daniel, which we'll go to in just a minute. But the phrase like a son of man tells us something. It tells us about the glorified, resurrected body of Christ and also our own. For all who are in Christ, when we die, our soul will go immediately into the presence of Christ. And then at future glory, ultimate glory, we will have resurrected, glorified bodies. And as John is receiving this revelation, there's a part of him that recognizes the one who's giving it, but another part that recognizes that it's not recognizable. Christ looks different, different than the man whose head he laid his chest on. That was John's beautiful opportunity as part of the gospel. So what did he see as he saw this glorified, like the son of man, man? Well, we get specifics. First, 
we see what he's wearing. Every word is God's word and every word matters. This man, the son of man, was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And what you're going to see as we unpack each of these little details is that the role of Christ become very clear. He is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a king. The garment that he's wearing can be used for kings, but it's primarily used for the priests that you see in the Old Testament. Jesus is wearing this priestly garment because he's taking on the role of the priest, the great high priest. Describes his hair next. It says in verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. What did that mean? Well, it spoke of his wisdom and his age. Do you think very often of Jesus with white hair? That's biblical. He's seen here in his glory with white hair. When you think of praying to Christ, do you think about this vision that John had of Jesus here in his glory? Are you just, or do you simply, and I'm not saying this is wrong, think of him at the well, at, with the woman at the well, or touching the leper. That's appropriate, but it's also appropriate to recognize he has risen, he's reigning. And as our reigning king, there is a transcendent majesty that is unlike anyone or anything John had ever seen, even though he walked with Christ. Next, it describes his eyes. This is awesome. It says, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. What does that mean? What well, speaks when it speaks of fire, the word is talking about purity and purification and judgment. This is what John sees with his eyes when he sees the eyes of the one like the Son of Man. Then it describes his feet in verse 15, that they were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Once again, it's speaking about the purification of the feet of this one who is the Son of Man. And they're strong and they're stable they are fixed. Then he speaks of his voice, and he describes his voice this way. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Imagine John on that island, how he heard the waves crashing against the rocks of this very rocky island. He describes God's voice, speaking of God's word, and here there is authority and power and persuasion Next, he moves to his right hand. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Seven stars. What's that about? We've been told it's these angels that are ministering to the seven churches. And the church is being held in the hand of this son of man. Picture that. This church, the church, is being held by this one. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. We immediately go to Hebrews 4.12, where we're told the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. This sword brings judgment. It brings blessings, and it brings curses. And then lastly, he says this, his face 
was like the sun shining in full strength. This is not an artist rendering. No matter how gifted the artist is, even in our own church, we have so many gifted artists. I'm amazed at what they can do. But no artist could ever on camp canvas or through film create the reality of what John is seeing. He describes his face like the sun shining in full strength. How long can you look at the sun? Right now, you don't even feel like you can go outside. Be encouraged. I don't think we're supposed to hit 100 today. Go home, turn your faucets on, let them drip. You might need to. Some of you will get that in a minute. He is looking at a face, and the only way he can describe it is it's like the sun, shining at full strength. What did he see? It's more important to answer the question, who did he see? He saw Jesus, the promised one, not the one who just showed up in the Gospel of Matthew, but one from the Old Testament forward. Take your Bible or the blue one in front of you. Turn to the book of Daniel. It's going to be a little past the Psalms to the right. So if you're in the Psalms, keep going to the right. We preached the book of Daniel a couple falls ago. Good long journey through that. You could go listen to some of those sermons if you want to, but even then, we were showing you the power of how God's word is consistent from beginning to end. Look with me at verse 9. It's probably titled in your Bible, The Ancient of Days Reigns. This is Daniel's vision. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, it's capitalized because that is God, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Do you see the connection? His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court set in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Now, go on over to chapter 10. Now you're going to see Daniel's response to what he had seen. It says in Daniel 10, verse 6, his face like the appearance of lightning, speaking of God, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and I heard the sound of his words. When I did, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me, 
and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. This is the same God. It is not a different God. It is the same God from Genesis to Revelation who is giving us the history of redemption. The same God, this ancient of days, who now, in this vision before John, is showing his transcendent majesty. I want you to hear this. It's a phrase out of Derek Thomas's commentary. I think he only uses it once in one sentence. But what we just heard John describe can be described with no other words than transcendent, other than, bigger than, beyond. And it's our Lord that he sees. He describes his robe, that priestly robe. He describes his word, that prophetic role. He describes his kingly office as upholding, not just the churches, but actually the entire world. We see in his transcendent majesty, the sovereignty of God. As the priest, it says this, the priests in the Old Testament would, would trim the lamps. Go back to the seven lamps now. Jesus is our high priest. Picture this. The priest would trim the lamps, removing the wick and the old oil. He would refill the lamps with fresh oil and relight those lamps that had gone out. Likewise, Christ tends to the ecclesial lampstands by commending, correcting, exhorting, and warning in order to secure the church's fitness, including us, for service as light bearers in a dark world. Christ is faithfully doing it. This one who is transcendent, his majesty beyond what we can even imagine or comprehend is revealed to us through John. What was John's response? Like Daniel, look at verse 17. When I saw him, this is Jesus, John speaking of Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. We need to recapture that kind of fear of this transcendent, holy, majestic God. Whenever Christ appears, the word tells us we will fall. John was overwhelmed by what he saw, so he fell at the feet of Jesus. And you can imagine as he's falling, he's falling forward to bring praise and awe and wonder before this one who is so mighty and so awesome. In the Gospel of John, in the garden that he was in with Jesus on the night when Jesus was arrested, when those led by Judas came to arrest Jesus and they asked him who he was, Jesus said, I am he. It says that they all, those guards, those 
people who came to arrest him, they all drew back and fell to the ground. For us who are in Christ, we will fall forward because we are his. The high priest has done everything so that we could live in reverent fear and awe of him. But watch what happens next. As John is laying at the feet of the one he sees, he tells us, verse 17, second part, but he, this is Christ, laid his hand on me. That's the power of the gospel. That this transcendent, holy God, the one to whom the whole world one day will fall before, some worshiping him, some to their utter eternal shame and separation, he takes his hand as John, his beloved disciple, his apostle, is there at his feet and he touches him. Think about that hand. It's the hand that John saw touch the leper. It's the hand that John saw break the bread at the Last Supper. It's the hand that was pierced on the cross for the sins of all of his children. That hand that is the right hand, that is upholding the church is now the one that touches John. The living God lives inside us. We feel his touch through his word and spirit. We know that we are his because of what he says and what he does. He gives John this touch of mercy and grace, and then he speaks these words, fear not. He did not rebuke him for falling at his feet. That was right. But he said to him, because he's the beloved, as he touched him, fear not. And here's why you don't need to fear. Because I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus' response was to touch John. His response was to then say, fear not, and give him reasons why he should fear not. He said, I'm going to repeat it, I am the first and last. Here's what that means. Christ is in control. The alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. He's in control of everything. The tribulation that you and I experience, the fear of more coming, the darkness and the decay. Christ is not off his throne. He is not mystified. He is not confused. He is God and he's ruling. He says to John, I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. 
He did. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And in this phrase, I have the keys of death in Hades. That which once held him, he now has in that right hand as he governs and controls all things. The book of Revelation is meant to humble us by a vision of the absolute sovereignty of God over history, past, present, and future. There is nothing outside of God's control. Derek Thomas. When you see this vision of Christ in Revelation 1, is this the triumphant, transcendent, majestic Lord in your life? When you look to the tribulations of the world, the darkness and the decay, that which you see outside the church and even inside the church, which do you spend more time meditating on? The world, the flesh, and the devil would love for you to spend time meditating on the darkness and the decay. God has given us revelation so that we would meditate on him. And here's why. He's not shocked at anything that you and I are shocked by. The tribulation that we feel he said would come, and he said, but take heart, I have overcome the world, and he has. That's what he means by I am the living one. I died, but now I'm alive forever. That which held me down, I hold the keys to. Friend, as you think about your life and you audit the conversations you're having every day, are you living as a believer in the confident reality of who Christ is? Are you captivated by his transcendent majesty and have you experienced the intimacy of his touch? Both really matter. The temptation is for us to focus on things that we cannot be certain about. The tribulations, the culture we live in. We can be real about it, but the meditation needs to be on the triumph of the one who upholds his church and the world in his hand. Why did God give John this vision? Because it's who he is. And he knew that John on that island needed to see him in his glorified state and that he needed to hear the words that he spoke so that he then would, in obedience, give these words to us. Verse 19, Jesus speaks, 
Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As we move through the book of Revelation, let these verses anchor you. If you're tempted with the mystery, you're overwhelmed by some of the confusion, just remember God isn't. And he gave us this revelation to encourage us in the midst of the tribulation. Not becoming tribulation experts, but by becoming humble women and men, overwhelmed by the vast, majestic, transcendent glory of our risen King. (sighs) Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to see what you want us to see about him in this amazing book. Holy Spirit, fill us up and give us by your grace and for your glory the ability to believe and then live as you've called us to live. As a church, be our priest. Trim the wick. Relight what has been snuffed out that we too might in this dark and decaying world be a place where your light shines very bright. In the name of Christ, we pray, amen. Stand.